This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is off for today. And we joined by Alex Moazed, the CEO of Applico, and Rafi Avav, the head of European product development for WisdomTree. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of safe investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree its affiliates. It'll be a really interesting show today. We're gonna have a good conversation with Alex. He is a, for full disclosure, a data provider for an index that WisdomTree is is just creating. And uh, it's exciting to have him here in the studio to talk about his book, his concept. Alex, you've done a lot of research on platforms. Uh, maybe you could tell us what is a platform? Yeah, a platform business is a company that doesn't own the means of production, it owns the means of connection. And it creates value by facilitating the exchange of value by two or more different groups. So you have a consumer and you have a producer. If I'm Uber, I have a consumer and the driver is a producer. If I'm YouTube, my consumer is digesting a video created by a third-party content creator. So these businesses are able to get huge scale in a very asset light model in the sense that the inventory doesn't necessarily sit on their balance sheet. And that's what gives them these things called network effects and very defensible moats. Uh, and it's basically why this business model is able to have the highest profit margin out of any business model that's out there. And then as a result of that, the highest multiples uh, because these things at scale are so profitable. Tell us a little bit about how you came to start researching platform-based businesses. The book, Modern Monopolies, that I co-authored, Macmillan published it in 2016. And that book really goes deep into explaining that platform business models are the dominant business model of the 21st century, and that these businesses don't own the means of production, they own the means of connection. Uh, And then it goes much deeper than that. Uh, It also explains that There are eight different types of platform business models, a product marketplace like Amazon. At the high level is similar, but when you go much deeper is very different than say a content platform like Google search or YouTube. So the book really helps to connect these dots uh, about the business model, but then explain the differences in the different platform types and, and how that translates into the network effects and the interworkings of the actual model. What was your background before writing the book? Like, Where did you get your start? Uh, so I classify myself as an entrepreneur by trade, I guess. I started Applico uh, at about 10 years ago in college. And in, in building Applico, the company was working with and consulting with a lot of big tech platform companies like Google, as well as small tech platform startups. Uh, many, 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 many years ago before people even knew to use the word platform. And really being in the trenches, working inside of these big companies and seeing how technology was being used completely differently than other uh, clients that are called linear clients of ours, like an Intel or an HP, it was very clear to me that these companies were operating fundamentally differently than what you would call that traditional linear enterprise. Uh, And that was what sent me down this path of wanting to uh, find something and and characterize something that I could feel was happening, but but no one had really explained or defined uh, what was happening as as basically the dawn of this new platform business model. 
And are you seeing companies be able to transition from a linear model to a platform model? How successful is that transition happening? The past 20 years or so, we've really seen venture capital in its heyday uh, funding a bunch of startups that are the majority of which are platforms. If you look at over 60% of the unicorns, those multi-billion dollar uh, uh, tech startups, over 60% of them are platform businesses. And if you look at the top 25 startup uh, exits in the past 20 years, over 50% of those are also platforms. So basically, I think the past 20 years we've seen venture capital uh, reap the biggest rewards in, in being able to invest in these new platform uh, type business model startups. That said, we're now starting to see the evolution of this business model being embraced by large traditional enterprise, uh, Walmart being a really great example of that. But separate from Walmart, there's a bunch of other examples of traditional enterprises either making this transition internally uh, or externally through an acquisition. Walmart has actually done both. Um, and now starting to slowly see this creep into the world of private equity. Uh, so we're really still in the very early stages of, of seeing the impact of the business model. I think you also have uh, Microsoft, who switched from one sort of platform, which is an operating system, which brings uh, together developers and users, which is a really a platform business, to then launch Bing, which at the beginning was uh, you know, f a flailing search engine with very few relevant results with poor performance, but uh, using its other platform business, which is the operating system, to drive flow and traffic into the search uh, engine has created another platform business that brings together uh, um, uh, in, in that way, sort of transition from one platform to another. Yeah, Microsoft... Uh is, is definitely a platform company, definitely uh, would be in the index. Uh, and, and on their recent earnings report, Azure, uh, their development platform to compete with AWS, is absolutely crushing it. And, and Satya has really done a very good job of, of doing exactly that, is putting Azure, the platform, at the center of all things Microsoft. And, and the way he describes it is they're basically stacking platform on top of platform. And so they have this development platform in Azure that is now powering what they're doing in the cloud, what they're doing with the different kind of office apps and all of these different kinds of things. So Satya, uh, basically, um, that if you if you remember that um, YouTube video with Steve Ballmer going crazy just talking about developers, 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 and just having sweat drip all off of uh, everywhere off of him, um, he's actually been able to put that into practice very well with Azure as the underpinning kind of development platform for everything else that they've built on top. and And Microsoft's a great example of a platform conglomerate. Uh, and and certainly it's it's been showing in their earnings and their results. I mean, they just crushed it um, maybe a couple of weeks ago now, a few weeks ago in in their earnings because of that. So you think about the firm and sort of being an entrepreneur yourself and helping consult on platforms. How, how talk about a little bit more about your firm? Like how big is your team grown? What are you? What's the team look like? So yeah, Applico uh, today is working with uh, a handful of, of large multi-billion dollar enterprises uh, directly with the CEO. And the CEO is saying that it's inevitable that there's a platform future in my industry. And if I have a multi-billion dollar enterprise, why don't I own that future? Why don't I figure out how to either build or buy my own platform business? Um, and, and, and evolve my linear traditional model to embrace the platform model. Uh, and so we have less than 50 people out of two offices in New York and San Francisco. And, and our client teams will embed themselves with the client. And we basically hire ex-platform entrepreneurs. We like to call ourselves kind of the, the Y Combinator for large enterprises, where these former platform entrepreneurs um, People have, you know, one of the co-founders of Caviar to uh, the former CEO and co-founder of Munchery to Omni, which is a on-demand uh, storage and logistics company. It's all these ex-platform entrepreneurs that have had exits or raised significant amounts of capital uh, that 
then are able to put into practice a platform business with the help of a large multi-billion dollar company, which really helps to solve this chicken and egg problem of getting demand or getting supply or getting both. Um, and a lot of these big traditional enterprises have all the pieces of the puzzle. The hard part for them is to put those pieces together uh, and execute. And uh, that's what we as a firm and, and we as a firm of essentially a bunch of different platform entrepreneurs really excel at um, and, uh, and roll up our sleeves and enjoy doing. We're talking with Alex Molazed, CEO of Applico, and Rafi Avav, the head of European product development for Wisdom Tree. Is there industries that are the most ripe for where they've gone linear like and can use this platform change? Like where are you seeing the most success of where people need to, to get there. Yeah, so B2B distribution is a six to eight trillion dollar industry. It's two to three times the size of consumer retail. Consumer retail is about two and a half trillion dollars in the US. Amazon, for reference, has about 10% of that market. The Amazon does about $250 billion in GMV. GMV is? Uh, gross merchandise volume or value, depending on which V you want to use. Um, but that's basically the throughput uh, of of purchases on Amazon is about $250 billion. So I would argue Amazon is still relatively early in just penetrating overall consumer retail in the United States. Uh, B2B distribution, two to three times the size of that, is even earlier, which is a great place for large traditional businesses to try and capture these platform opportunities. Um, so there are hundreds of multi-billion dollar B2B distributors there are, uh, there's a huge amount of fragmentation, lack of pricing transparency, uh, and we've basically had 20 years of marketplaces going into retail, and now you're starting to see the same phenomenon of marketplaces going into B2B distribution. Amazon Business, for reference, was started three years ago. In three years, uh, Amazon Business has about $10 billion in GMV, and they're growing at 20%. Not 20% every year, not 20% every quarter, but 20% every month. So for the first time now, analysts at Bank of America, the, the research analysts on Amazon are saying, wow, uh, this is a very real growth opportunity for Amazon. And now they're starting to factor that into their projections for Amazon. And that's going, and, and what is the Amazon business angle going after? Amazon business, basically just, it's, it's a very similar model to what they've done on the consumer retail side. It's, but instead of selling to an individual consumer, you're selling to a business customer. That could be in anything for MRO, which is like industrial supplies, um, Granger and Fastenal HD supplier are some examples of big uh, MRO B2B distributors. So you're selling to a company or a manufacturer or a warehouse that is buying industrial supplies or it could be electrical supplies or it could be metal or it could be chemicals or uh, any number of different uh, um, business type of materials. And so a lot of the hardest problems are solved. Like Amazon loses a lot of money when they when they fulfill an order for $5. But the average order size from a business customer is much bigger than $5. So um, the, the adoption of the business customer has been slower. We're 20 years into it. But now they're starting to adopt. And a lot of the challenges of the marketplace model on consumer retail are inherently solved on B2B. So that's a massive opportunity. I'd also throw financial services into the mix as well with uh, banks and um, automotive and, uh, and what's happening with connected vehicles, even before autonomy arrives, but just tapping into the trillion dollars that are spent on or through services in the vehicle every year uh, and how a platform model could tap into that. Those are definitely pretty meaty. And do you see the disruption in those traditional linear sectors coming from, um, from incumbents or from disruptors from the outside? So, good question. Usually... In order for an incumbent to act, you need a tech disruptor to nudge them. So in my opinion, going back to B2B distribution, if these existing multi-billion dollar B2B distributors don't own the first or second largest B2B marketplace in the next five to 10 years, 
The blame is entirely on the CEO of that business. Full stop. Yes, Amazon is coming in, but you have billions of dollars worth of demand today that you can use to jumpstart your own marketplace. And so if you aren't looking at the threat, but recognizing that there's also a huge opportunity here, which is why the threat exists, and you don't act on that and, 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 and capitalize on it, then that's on you. And there's no one else to blame. You can't blame Amazon. You can't blame Google. You can't blame Apple. It is your fault as the CEO of that enterprise for not looking out for the long-term benefit of that company and recognizing that there's a sea change that is coming or has already arisen uh, in the industry of the new way of doing things, i.e. the platform way of doing things. So you deal with CEOs all the time. What is their, what is holding them back from doing that? Is it uh, cannibalizing or giving more businesses to competition, highlighting them through a platform? What, what are the reasons typically? I think part of it is them personally making the decision that this is where they want to go with their career and this is what they want their legacy to be. Uh, if you look at the average tenure of a CEO of a, of a large public company, it's about four, maybe four and a half years. So it's much easier to have good performance in that four-year period of time and then have someone else come in. And, and very often, the, the actual threat materializing from an Amazon, say, disrupting you in B2B distribution won't happen on your watch. It'll happen on the subsequent CEO's watch. So it's not necessarily going to be your explicit problem. Um, so that's part of it is what is the motivation of the CEO who's in charge? I think if they then do have the motivation to say, we should own this, we need to go after this, uh, and, and we need to start pursuing it, then I think on the execution side of that is really a matter of saying, organizationally, um, is the company does it have its head above water? You know, do you just have too many things on fire that you can't even focus or you just don't even have enough staff on your team who can actually just start thinking about something super long-term, super disruptive and super risky and expensive. Um, so it's not easy to do this and it's very hard to execute on this. So if you just have so many fires going on and the business is underwater or needs serious upheaval just on its fundamental operations, then I, I can understand that and the business just isn't in a position to do this anyway. But assuming that, that the business is doing moderately well and, and you have a good rhythm with the team and you don't have massive upheaval internally going on, um, then it's really just up to the CEO to say, am I looking far enough out in the future and what do I want my legacy to be and, and is this the right thing to do for the business? Uh, but that's very hard to do. You need to reset investor expectations over the long term, which we've seen is probably one of the CEO's collectively biggest complaints about just being a public company is being judged on a quarterly basis. It's very hard to get that investor sentiment on your side to explain why you're making long-term uh, risky bets on a new business model um, and why that's the right thing to do. So it's very hard to manage that externally and then internally keep the team focused on the quarterly earnings while still having their, their eye on that long-term ball. We're talking with Alex Molazed, CEO of Applico, and Rafi Avav, the head of European product development for Wisdom Tree. So when you think about these platform businesses and, and their success rates and the characteristics of what makes them attractive as long-term opportunities, how would you describe the opportunity growth profile, the fundamental profile of a typical platform business company? So, yeah, as we've seen, uh, Uber just going public recently, it, it really takes around 10 years, if not at least 10 years, for these platforms to hit this type of critical mass where they can either get to a point of profitability or have profitability within their sites with enough confidence that they could go public. Um, but even still, Uber's losing a lot of money. Lyft is losing a lot of money. Um, and they're still working towards that. So it's a very long-term thing to have a platform of significant scale where you could start to have that winner-take-all dynamic where there's one or two given winners in, in an industry, which is the natural endpoint for any industry that does have platforms of scale is, is to only have one or two winners. But it's really at least 10 years 
um, with a significant amount of capital being invested along those 10 years um, because there's a lot of competition that props up from other platforms and generally uh, cash is a surefire way to ensure that you can continue to grow um, at the scale or at the pace that, that you believe is appropriate while also retaining the existing consumers or producers. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'm talking with Alex Moazed of Applico and Rafi Avav from Wisdom Tree's European product development team. There's been a lot of this sort of narrative out there that companies are staying private longer, Uber and Lyft being these behemoths that were stayed private and all the benefits accrued to private investors, and now they're issuing stock, and this is a sign, it's late cycle, the stocks are expensive, they're issuing stock. Like Any reactions to that kind of narrative out there that uh, just the VC craze of big companies that the public investors can't access? Yeah, it's very true. I mean, overall, over the past few years, VC investment has actually overall been growing. But if you look at the number of first financings in new tech startups, they've been declining since 2014. So the number of new companies getting funded has been declining for the past few years, but the overall amount of capital being invested has been going up, which is to that point that Really, it's these mega VC deals that have been drastically increasing in the past few years, uh, SoftBank and all these kinds of mega VC funds. So it's true that these companies are definitely going public at a more mature stage. That said, when you just, again, go going back to that point, I mean, Uber's basically 10 years old. Um, they're still not profitable. But if you just look at the market penetration and the ability for these companies to really start to focus on being profitable, um, and churning out cash, which is a natural uh, attribute of these pl platforms at, at monopoly scale. Um, there is a huge amount of potential ahead for the Ubers of the world. And I think if you, if you look at the next few years and how the Uber stock performs, uh, I think we're going to see it do exactly that. I think um, investors, public investors are still getting a great deal to be able to get into Uber now sub $40 a share. Um, and if you hold it for the long term, I think you're going to do very, very well with that investment. Very interesting. Is there any uh, surprising place where you've found platform businesses, sectors that you, you didn't expect would be able to support uh, or, or where platform businesses would emerge? Yeah, so in, in looking at the data, there's uh, around 70 public platform stocks with a uh, material multi-billion dollar level of market cap. And I think in, in, in putting this data and this product together, it's very interesting to see the amount of penetration in financial services uh, with companies like Market Access, which is basically a marketplace for uh, trading bonds. And um, obviously there's the PayPals of the world that everyone would be familiar with, but when you really look at the history of a company like MasterCard or Visa or American Express. MasterCard and Visa were essentially brought into existence because of laws many, many decades ago to um, prevent the transfer of money across state lines. So all the banks came together and created these, basically this kind of nonprofit cooperative, which was Visa and MasterCard, to allow banks to send money across state lines and today, those kind of cooperative enter entities have morphed into Visa and MasterCard. But um, if you listen to Al Kelly, the CEO of Visa, or Ajay, uh, the CEO of MasterCard, they will describe themselves as a B2B2C technology company, technology and data company, which is exactly what they are. They are essentially uh, an, a, a marketplace to enable payments to transfer. Um, and, and so they're in the index as well. So would... Um, the uh, stock exchanges and, and, and different exchanges that are out there kind of as the foundation to underpin the stock market and all these different uh, folks that are trading equities. So um, it's very interesting to see that there actually is uh, over 15, maybe between 15 or 20 percent um, of this overall profile of, of public platforms are in the financial services industry. Uh, that said, I, I still think there's much more uh, potential ahead for platform penetration in financial services. So um, where do you see that next opportunity in financial services? Where should we be focused on as building platforms? So I think in lending, if, if you look at banks, 
how do banks make money? It's basically 50% fees and roughly the other 50% is interest. And when you look at what platforms and marketplaces really haven't been able to fully capitalize on, except for maybe a lending tree, for example, also uh, included in, in this platform profile in the index, um, the amount of lending that's still done in a linear traditional way through banks, which I would argue banks don't actually do a very good job at lending. If you look at fintech lenders, on the other hand, they do a much better job at lending. Uh, they can lend to consumers or small and medium-sized businesses that a, a large regulated bank that basically has free cost of capital um, cannot lend to. And so you, when you look at the rejection rates or when you look at the subprime uh, markets that are out there and you see that banks are rejecting um, maybe not half of, of the people that want credit, but but certainly over 25 or 30 percent of the people that come to them and say, hey, I want a loan. They say no. I mean, what other business is able to make billions of dollars in profit and turn away, say, at least a third of the customers that want to do business? Not many industries. So um, I think we're going to see the ability for banks to embrace uh, a marketplace model to let fintech lenders uh, get involved in that process alongside a bank. I think those are some great examples. Um, and if you look at what Ant Financial and other uh, fintech platforms in China have been doing, um, they were starting to move in this direction until the Chinese government started to crack down on loans and all these kinds of things. But if you look at Asia and Southeast Asia in particular, you're starting to see these trends manifest themselves there and then slowly come to uh, Euro U.S. and European markets. We're talking with Alex Molazed, CEO of Applico, and Rafi Avav, the head of European product development for WisdomTree. Where do you think the risk lies for platform businesses? Uh, how, you know, we hear a lot about the winner takes all. In what scenarios does the winner lose all or uh, regulation? Yeah, regulation is definitely where it's at. I think there's a lot of buzz around privacy these days. Um, I would argue privacy helps. Uh, the tech platforms, if you look at Facebook and Google, they should be kissing the feet of the European legislators uh, for this thing called GDPR. GDPR basically created all these rules and fines around how you can advertise to people in Europe. But guess who has the best data and the best technology to comply with those rules uh, and advertising regulation? Facebook and Google. So post-GDPR in Europe, Facebook and Google have a more dominant market share of digital advertising in Europe. I think where the threat is to your question is really on these businesses being classified as a monopoly uh, and violating antitrust regulation, which, which there's been very clear precedent for the past 50 years on. And just a couple weeks ago, the Supreme Court uh, had a ruling about Apple uh, violating antitrust law with the App Store. And basically, um, Neil Gorsuch was in the dissenting minority on the ruling. So he, he disagreed that Apple should be classified as a monopoly. And basically they were saying that Apple's a monopoly. They are taking 30%, a 30% cut of um, App Store uh, revenue. And that is a disadvantage for customers. So the single thing that antitrust law and regulation looks at is you are a monopoly if you take advantage of the end customer and you're being considered to take advantage of the customer if you raise prices on the customer. So if you make things more expensive for the customer, you're considered a monopoly and that's bad. And that's pretty much all they look at for the past 50 years. So they said, hey, customers are buying apps from Apple. Apple's charging 30%, which means that that price is effectively going up for the customer uh, on an iPhone. And that's not good for the customer. So what Neil Gorsuch said in, in the dissenting opinion is all Apple needs to do to get around this ruling is to say that a consumer is buying an app from the developer, the money is going to the developer, and then Apple's taking a 30% cut from the developer. And that's a contractual, basically a contractual nitpicking thing. And so, and so as long as Apple changes their terms of service in the App Store, this ruling will essentially be negated and, and Apple won't have antitrust concerns. Where it is an antitrust concern is when companies like Apple vertically integrate. Uh, 
and compete unfairly with supply. And, and so that's really where this comes full circle. Because platforms have consumers and producers, they effectively have two customer groups. This ruling from the Supreme Court was looking at the consumer as a customer group, which is what antitrust law for, for the f past 50 years has looked at. But producers, suppliers, are also a customer group. So as Neil Gorsuch was saying, Apple should just take 30% from the developer, not the consumer, which means that the app developer is also a customer of Apple. And so then you look at Spotify. Spotify sued Apple a couple months ago, saying that uh, Apple is unfairly competing against Spotify. That is really where the concern is. Um, that's what Microsoft got in trouble for in the 90s with Netscape. That's what Yelp has been suing Google about for seven years. That's what uh, the EU fined Google in 2017 about um, competing unfairly with Google Shopping and, uh, and, and giving preferential treatment to the Android apps uh, with OEMs. It's when these platforms compete with supply unfairly and when supply is considered a customer, which it is, because that's who, who does Amazon make money? They charge 5 to 15% fee to the seller selling products on Amazon. Uh, same thing with uh, YouTube. They take a 45% cut of the advertising revenue from content creators on YouTube. So when the platforms unfairly regulate or compete, either vertically integrate and compete unfairly with supply, that's really where they could legitimately be classified as an antitrust violation, as a monopoly, as taking advantage of the customer, just the customer not being a consumer, the customer being the producer, the supplier, and then they can't get out of that one. Well, having looked at the Microsoft's track record, yes, it was a bit of a setback, but they're still here, and they're they're here with a much higher uh, stock price than they were when all these uh, um, limitations were put by the regulator on separating Internet Explorer and unbundling uh, Microsoft Office from uh, Windows. So c can they be unseated once a platform is established critical mass? Uh, is there a scenario in which, uh, in which someone can come in and compete? And, uh, and, and, and if we haven't seen those, maybe because these are still young businesses, a lot of them, and from a sort of looking uh, longer into history, these are s still... Uh, I mean, what's interesting is you have some guys like Buffett saying technology always changes and I can't buy the new technology because I don't understand it because it's always getting disrupted, yet he also loves consumer products and he's been a big buyer of Apple and maybe now, maybe now Amazon is a new thing that some of his PMs are adding exposure to. Yeah. Yeah, I think ba basically... Um, you're right. You know, Microsoft gets in trouble. I, I, I don't think that these companies being broken up is realistic. I think there is a role for regulation, but actually breaking these things up, even though they are platform conglomerates, um, actually doesn't solve the problem. Because again, it's not the consumer that's actually taken advantage of, it's the supplier. And regulation, empowering regulators like the FTC, uh, can, can be a perfectly legitimate way to handle that as opposed to the extreme of breaking up uh, Facebook and these companies, which I don't think is realistic or really gets to the underlying way that the platform model operates. But to your point, Jeremy, every, every 10, 20 years, there's, there's a massive technology upheaval. And we've seen this just as, as right, going back to Microsoft, uh, they missed the internet and, and, and with search. They missed smartphones. Um, and so there absolutely is, a, a, a massive technology upheaval. Um, and you're starting to see that even though there are these big uh, platform monopolies kind of at the horizontal level, if you look at an Amazon, you're now seeing vertical-specific competitors, right? So on the marketplace side, you'll see a public marketplace like Farfetch that went public in the fall, which is a marketplace for luxury designer goods. Um, on the content side, you'll see a company like Pinterest, which is filed to go public in 2019, uh, be very specific. And, and so you'll see maybe these mega category winners like a Facebook or like an Amazon, but you're still seeing room for these vertical specific platform competitors to still reach a material size, you know, multi billions of dollars worth of market cap. Um, so you still see, I think, a pretty competitive environment with then a massive upheaval every 10 or 20 years when there's a new technology 
coming into the foray. It, it strikes me that uh, uh, Chinese protectionism, uh, basically pushing out some of these uh, businesses like Amazon to, to a small to a smaller degree, uh, Google as well. Um, has essentially created what could be the counterbalance uh, by allowing other platform businesses to flourish uh, within their jurisdiction. If you look 50 years into the future and you think who who are going to be Google's competitors, who is go- who's going to be Microsoft's competitor, uh, could these businesses come out of sort of protectionist policy today and you, th- the global consumer might actually be saved by protectionist policies today, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean China has done a good job and a very good job in using protectionist policy to foster a very strong and robust tech and VC startup community in China. Uh, and, and out of that, you've seen some massive uh, platform monopolies. Uh, I think we have about 20% concentration in, in Chinese uh, tech platforms, which is impressive, uh, and more than Europe, right? Europe is about 12%. So um, that's definitely worked. I think where you're seeing these uh, big Chinese and U.S. tech platform monopolies compete are in places like India um, and Southeast Asia. And, um, and now what's in- interesting is India has kind of taken a hybrid approach where uh, now, for for example, marketplaces, you know, they're saying, hey, you, you, you either, if you're a foreign-owned entity like Flipkart now, because Walmart bought Flipkart, you can either be a marketplace or you can be a linear traditional reseller. But you can't be both unless you are a local uh, Indian company. So it's really interesting to kind of see the role of uh, some degree of protectionist regulation, China certainly being on one extreme, India somewhat being in the middle, and, and the U.S. being the most open, um, and how that's influencing it. But um, certainly emerging markets are able to kind of see that vacuum be filled by large U.S. or Chinese tech platforms unless that country uh, implements its own regulation to try and even the playing field, which um, which not many are doing, or not many countries, I'd say, have the the wherewithal to do that. Um, so yeah, it's playing out. We're talking with Alex Molazed, CEO of Applico, and Rafi Avav, the head of European product development for Wisdom Tree. We've talked about some of the financial service platforms, some of the ride sharing, some of the, the technologies like Microsoft and Amazon. Any other types of platforms that you think are interesting or places that people should be thinking about in, in this platform model? As I think about platform businesses, I often t- think about, well, there's this one group of humans and another group of humans, and the platform brings them together. Have you seen examples where a, a platform is not, really, um, is not really people and people and other people brought together, but is it people and data? Is it people and intelligence, like in the case of sort of AI or in terms of how you get the same sort of flywheel effect that that platform businesses have, but the components in that flywheel are not are not necessarily one group of people and another group of people, but sometimes just data and users. Or have, have you seen the, those to- types of uh, sort of different platform businesses? Yeah, I think the some of the areas that are are very data intensive that. Um, and, and really haven't been penetrated at all would be something like healthcare. And it's actually really unfortunate. I mean, I, I think it is the biggest uh, single industry in the U.S. economy. And why don't you see business model innovation, i.e. platform business models coming into healthcare? And um, it's really unfortunate, whatever the reason is, uh, which I think stems to just a heavily consolidated payer system and new platform business models, marketplaces, just if you can't touch the money, it's very hard to actually see through true business model change in an industry. Um, and so uh, health insurance companies don't necessarily like the idea of seeding money to another business like a marketplace. Uh, and not having control over that. So it makes it very difficult. But but in healthcare, also, when you look at the role of data and how you can monetize that data, we're seeing entire companies being bought who I would not regard as a platform company like Flatiron uh, Health, which is here in 
New York and um, Roach will buy them simply because they can get access to the data and use that to uh, improve their drug discovery efforts and accelerate their clinical trial approvals. Um, but I think now we're starting to see platforms being able to move into places on the pharmaceutical side, like in clinical trials, uh, which is very fragmented, very inefficient, um, probably one of the uh, least transparent industries in terms of data transparency, um, as well as hopefully something in, in the realm of drug discovery. But you have massive companies like Epic and Cerner, which are the EHR companies of record, that electronical, electronic health record companies, that have a business model of keeping data closed, of not opening up data, of not letting people get access to that data, of not letting them build software on top of that data. And not only is it bad from a business standpoint, uh, but it's really bad just for a quality of care and cost of care. And I would argue that a lot of these traditional companies that when you say, well, what does it take for a large traditional company to actually innovate? It takes that threat. Um, and, and unfortunately, they haven't had a big enough threat. I'd say to this date, the biggest threat to them has been the government um, regulating them. But I see the potential for some of the large platform companies like a Google, like an Amazon, uh, like an Apple, to be able to come in here and add some more pressure to them to really take disruptive action. Because up, up until this point, they really haven't done anything material. Uh, and someone should be holding them accountable. In terms of the types of platforms that we've talked about, um, you know, I, I looked through the different types of platforms that, that you categorize. There's, we've talked about the product marketplaces, there's the payment platforms, there's investment platforms, social networking platforms, communication platforms, closed development platforms, controlled development platforms, open development platforms, and then content platforms. Am I missing anything on the platform list? Of, That's the platform list, yeah. Um, and is there, is there, as you think about how you want exposure to these types of platforms, I mean, is there something new as you, th how do you think about adding to this type of platform list over time? I mean, where, how, do we, how do we look at that? Yeah, so basically my, one of my biggest takeaways is that technology is in a sector. Uh, it is now embedded into every major vertical of the economy. And basically, these different platform types and, and the platform business model is kind of like the creme de la creme. It's, it's the best form of technology company within each one of these uh, cohorts in these different industries. Um, the massive mover and shaker platform type is the closed development platform. Those are really ones that have an operating system. Uh, so you could think about the iPhone or Android. You could think about Windows. You could think about uh, Xbox or PlayStation, right? These are hardware that a consumer is interfacing with, and they have an operating system that run on them, and people are building software on top of that. Um, and so when you look at all the potential for new software businesses to be built on top of those development platforms, that's really kind of the, I'd say, the foundation for the past 20 years of the venture capital industry. Basically, the internet, which is a development platform, um, just not necessarily owned by any one company. And then you had smartphones. And look at if you look at the innovation of, again, uh, first financings into startups from, from the VC world, it basically tracks almost exactly when the introduction of the internet and the introduction of smartphones uh, are directly tied to uh, the venture capital industry and, and kind of the boon of new startup innovation in those sectors. So these really kind of closed development platforms um, are kind of the underpinning for all other tech-based innovation to be built on top of that. Is the blockchain one of the new platform types that we're going to be adding, looking exposures for? Maybe. Um, I am probably a little bit more of a skeptic on blockchain just because there's so much hype and everyone has so many different meanings of what the blockchain is. I would say cryptocurrency, actually this was, this was put very well recently by, I think it was the CEO of MasterCard, where he said that the cryptocurrency um, isn't a currency, it's really an asset class. Uh, which I would agree with entirely. Um, and the blockchain to me is kind of like one component 
of of what the internet was. You know, if you have if you have the internet and you have kind of the HTTP protocol and you have all these different services that are wrapped around that, uh, like the scripting language and 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 the hosting and the server and you know all these different layers that kind of allow you to have a website that a computer can access and interact with. To me, blockchain is one component which you need a whole slew of services built around blockchain to actually enable true software utility to uh, to your users. Any, anything you want to add to that? Closing thoughts, Rafi, from everything you've heard or any final questions from you? Um, very interesting. I, I you know, uh, this uh, blockchain has been a topic of conversation between myself and Jeremy and, and a few other people, especially this is blockchain week now in New York. Uh, so uh, I do expect to see sort of more Plat myself, I expect to see more platform innovation coming out of uh, blockchain-based technology, blockchain-based networks, uh, or just for blockchain to be the medium uh, through which you connect uh, uh, various parties. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but no, really, really interesting stuff, Alex. And Alex, any any other closing thoughts as you think about you know where? This platform model has appeal, has scale. Any sort of closing thoughts on the platform business models generally? I think we're we're 20 years in, but we're very early. If if you could take a look back and say, oh, when the industrial revolution was happening, and I could now use machines and and water and steam powered machines, it took. 50 plus years for the true impact of, of machines and how that would change just businesses and society um, for that true impact to be realized. And it's really the same thing. We're really still in the early stages of seeing how the platform business model will completely upend entire industries. Um, and we have yet to really see it move into um, very industrial in, uh, uh, verticals like B2B distribution or entire industries like healthcare. Um, and so we're still in the very, very early stages. Rafi, so that was an interesting conversation with Alex. Um, as you think about platforms in this model generally, you've done a lot of work on technology and artificial intelligence that's shaping the future economy. What's your thoughts on, on this conversation we just had? That's a, that's a good question. I think, first of all, the way people look at uh, thematic investing, um, it's a long-term play. And, and if you look at uh, where economic value is generated, a lot of it is generated through innovation, not necessarily making things more efficient, but innovating. And as we think of where value is captured, um, there are all these models that are starting to sprout up. I mean, the, the theory around business um, evolution has never been so rich uh, uh, as it is today. I think if we think back 20 years into the past, managers and people that are looking at the industry just did not have all the frameworks that we have today for segmenting the different types of businesses and value creation methods. Um, so I think as we, as we think about that and we try to identify companies that are going to have moats five to 10 years down the road. Um, and Alex mentioned winner-take-all uh, sort of models. And I think we see that in platform businesses for obvious reasons, the network externalities that cause, that mean that for every additional user, uh, that user's benefit from the system increases with the, uh, as the amount of existing users uh, increases. So that means, um, uh, that Marginal means- cost to acquire a user goes down to zero is what he says. Yes, the other way to look at that is that, and there's also greater motivation for more users to come in, where where the cost is almost insignificant. the co The cost can be zero; it's almost negative, because to the user, it's so beneficial to come into the platform. Because in, if it's Facebook, it's all their friends are on it. If it's other businesses, there's advantages to scale. So it's like uh, the chicken or egg problem. It's like how do you get to big? big size, which is why these companies could lose a lot of money up to start because they want to make their platforms big, lose a lot of money, and then the question is they'll capture the value. So all these platforms, that some of the new IPOs, they're losing money. Will they become massive scale? 
Yeah, and you see you see various races, races for scale. And as we think about the races for scale, in the case of AI businesses, you see races for data. So there are companies sprouting up whose entire business purpose is to purchase up uh, proprietary data that uh, that can help power uh, machine learning algorithms and provide them unique insights. Um, and uh, and when you think about why they're doing that and and why it makes sense to make that investment upfront. Uh, you see that platform businesses are one sort of uh, business that will be hard to un unseat and creates a moat around it. Uh, AI is another one because if you think about the virtual cycle or the flywheel effect uh, of AI, um, what happens there is you need data to make the machine learning algorithms work well. Uh, once they work well, the performance uh, is good. You can get on more users. Uh, because they like the fact that you have better performance than your uh, competitors. More users generate a lot more data for you. You have better performance, you get more users. So you see that virtual cycle and uh, means that companies that start early, we don't know who will win at this stage, but we know it is there is a bit of a winner-take-home take um, um, effect in this uh, sector as well. Um, so... I think platform businesses super super interesting. Trying to identify other sort of uh, businesses that have this emerging moat around them uh, is is interesting as well as people think. As I said, thematic investing five ten years into the future. So you need to be investing. At, you would need to start your investment at the right stage, the right timing. And I think uh, I, I think we're certainly not late. Uh, uh, to a lot of these tech themes. Well, thanks for joining us on our show here today. Before we finish up, I'd like to note just a few things. Past performance is not indicative of future results. The Wisdom Tree Modern Tech Platform Fund is new and has a limited operating history. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. Foreign investing involves special risks, such as risk of loss from currency fluctuations or political or economic uncertainty. These risks may be enhanced in emerging offshore or frontier markets. Technology platform companies have significant exposure to consumers and businesses, and a failure to attract or retain a substantial number of such users to a company's products, services, content, or technology could adversely affect operating results. Technological changes could require substantial expenditures by a technology platform company to modify or adapt its products, services, content, or infrastructure. Technology platform companies typically face intense competition, and the development of new products is a complex and uncertain process. Concern regarding a company's products or services that may compromise the privacy of users or other cybersecurity concerns, even if unfounded, could damage a company's reputation and adversely affect operating results. Many technology platform companies currently operate under less regulatory scrutiny, but there is significant risk that costs associated with regulatory oversight could increase in the future. The fund invests in the securities included in, representative of its index regardless of their investment merit, and the fund does not attempt to outperform its index or take defensive positions in declining markets. The composition of the index is heavily dependent on quantitative and qualitative information and data from one or more third parties, and the index may not perform as intended. Please read the fund's prospectus for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com to view or download a prospectus. Investors should read the prospectus carefully before investing. Wisdom Tree funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, which is not affiliated with the entities mentioned. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.